Stay hungry, stay foolish. This show is brought to you with thanks to Microsoft for Startups. Today's guest teaches business leaders about the importance of relationship building in the digital age. He argues that in spite of and because of the advances in tech, we've become a less connected society. We have dramatically evolved from face-to-face communication and the skill of building rapport is evaporating. This means that customer personalization and relationships are more important than ever before. Being able to build true, sustainable relationships is the biggest competitive advantage in a world where automation, artificial intelligence, and machine learning are eliminating the human experience, which is what creates the emotional connections that build true customer loyalty. We welcome author of The Relationship Economy, Building Stronger Customer Connections in the Digital Age, John DeJulius. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's such an honor to be on. John, you start off the book by saying some skills cannot be cultivated, but the one skill that is essential is the ability to connect with others. Our lives may be high tech, but they're increasingly low touch. I will argue, other than breathing in oxygen, there is no greater skill any of us can work on and, and focus on that will have a bigger benefit in our personal and professional lives than the art of building a rapport instant rapport, whether that be with a stranger, client, coworker, acquaintance, whoever. The problem is that this isn't taught anywhere. It's not taught in school. It's not being taught at home anymore. And not enough businesses are teaching it. And today's illiterate are those who have an inability to make meaningful connections with others. And we know social isolation is physically as well as mentally unhealthy. And as you call out the unhealthy side, is the same as smoking 15 cigarettes per day. Yeah, I mean, it's crazy. That's what doctors have found, the same negative side effects. So if you're a smoker, you're really in trouble. There's also a a term called digital dementia. And that is doctors have done brain scans and found heavy users, heavy, heavy users of digital devices. Their brain scans look similar to people who've suffered brain injuries. This is serious. And we're all guilty of it. This isn't a generational thing. We love to pick on millennials and Gen Z. First off, we're the generation that raised them, so it doesn't make too much sense. But we're the ones that gave them an iPad when they were five, six, and seven to keep them preoccupied so we can get our stuff done. And so we have a whole society that is relationship disadvantaged at no fault of their own. Linked to digital dementia, you mentioned MSA, mental stimulation addiction, and you mentioned that this is something you suffer from, and today it's a total epidemic. So mental stimulation is is attrition for your brain. You think about when you take the cast off, we've all probably had a cast once in our lives and you take the cast off and you have muscle atrophy. Well, when we don't use our brain, we're having that same atrophy happening and we're outsourcing our brains to technology and digital devices. And I'm guilty of all these things. And that's why it's great doing the research and writing this book because it really helped me become more cognizant. But, you know, I've sit in doctor's office, right? Waiting to be taken. And I pull out my phone and I'll check my emails and text and social media and ESPN and headline news and whatever else. And then I'll put it away. And without thinking about it, I pull that device back out within 15 to 30 seconds 
and check all the exact same places again. Like, like what could have changed in that amount of time? And they say boredom leads to brilliant ideas. And we're not bored enough anymore. We're never sitting still. I mean, unless you're, you know, into yoga and meditating, which I absolutely think is great, but not enough people are. We don't just sit and daydream. And you've heard the cliche, which is very true. We get our best ideas in the shower. Well, we either need to be taking more showers or find ways to have a relationship with ourselves. And one example, I love listening to podcasts, right? Especially when I work out. But what I try to do a couple of days a week is not listen to anything. And at first it was freaky hard, right? But I will tell you, when I get back like from a workout, I have to run and find paper. It might be paper in the garbage to write down all these thoughts that came to me while my mind was still. And all of a sudden you just start thinking of like these great things you should be doing at work or at home or whatever. Bringing it back to the workplace, you cite research that highlights that 89% of senior leaders consider relationships are critical to career success, yet only 24% do anything to cultivate relationships. Here you list five key skills to develop strong relationships. The biggest thing I think everyone needs to realize Make no mistake about it, the decline in social skills that every generation, baby boomers all the way down, we're all experiencing a decline in our own people skills. The decline in people skills is the problem of business leaders to solve. We can't skip this generation. Again, at no fault of their own, we have generations that weren't built with the emotional intelligence that many of us had decades to cultivate. So there's five things your orientation and soft skill training must help with the art of building relationships. Number one, must be authentic. Number two, must have insatiable curiosity. Number three, must have incredible empathy. Number four, must love people. And number five, must be a great listener. I know for a fact that four of those that I just rattled off can be taught. Now, if you can find employees and candidates with the skill set or a portion of it, you're that much better off. But I know for a fact that four of these can be taught to people. There's one that can't be taught. No matter how much training you put someone, you can't move the, the needle on this. And we have to find it on the interview process. You must love people right? I can't teach you. I can't teach anyone to genuinely love people if that's not in them, right? I mean, all the training in the world. And that's why our interview process has to recognize the ones that do and that don't. And, and it doesn't mean you don't hire them. It, it means that you put them in a position that's non, non-human interactive if you have such a position. But I don't think we can teach anyone to love others if they didn't get it growing up. Let's stay on that, John. We talked before the show and we said, let's go down some rabbit holes. Let's let's go down a rabbit hole on the interview process because you talk about this, about the importance if you're going to create a customer-loving business that you need to hire for attitude, not aptitude. And in order to do that, you have some beautiful tricks where you can set the interview, the setting up in order to explore things because anybody can put their best foot forward, but you really want to see how they act under pressure. Yeah, you got to make your interview process ungameable. And what I mean by that is if you're interviewing me for a job, I know one of your questions is probably going to be something to the version of, John, tell me two drawbacks about you. And I'm ready for that. Well, I'm a workaholic and a perfectionist, right? Bam, I nailed that. 
So people can be prepared in game interviews and give the answers that HR wants to hear. So you want to to do things the employee candidate is never suspecting. So some great best practices is on a first interview, do group interviews. So instead of spending an hour each with six different people, which is a total of six hours, have six people come in at once and spend an hour with them and go over the job and all that. And then in that process, you ask questions. And a question might be, I want each of you to tell me a time when you went above and beyond for a client or a difficult situation and you had to figure out. The question is really irrelevant. Now, the candidate thinks that they're being graded on who has the best answer of the six. But what the employer should be really looking for is what are the candidates doing when the other ones are talking? right? Is he or she peeking at their Apple watch? Are they checked out days? Or are they smiling, nodding, and making the the person that's talking at the time feel good? That's the candidate we want. Another really good one I love, the CEO of Charles Schwab does, when it's an executive hire from the outside, and he or, or someone on his team will take that executive candidate to a local diner, and the diner knows what to do. So the local diner is prepared that anything you, the candidate orders, gets screwed up, right? I mean, it's just a cluster where everything they bring you, if you wanted eggs, they bring you pancakes. If you wanted ketchup, they bring you Tabasco sauce. I mean, it's just to see how someone reacts in that kind of environment. And so these things are are ungameable, right? You're going to show who you really are in those types of situations. I love that one. You don't want to be hilarious if somebody's listening to the show and they're just about to go for an interview and they hear this and they're like, thank God for that DeJulius guy. Yeah. He just he got me the job. But then you get a letter in the post. But one thing you mentioned there was how are they reacting when other people are speaking, for example, and you mentioned one of the key five skills, listening. And I loved the piece of research where you highlighted that it takes 0.6 of a second to formulate any answer, but scientists studied hundreds of conversations and found that people answered within 0.2 of a second. So that meant that they weren't listening at all and they were pre-preparing their answer. And we had a great guest on the show before, Julian Treasure, and his book is How to Be Heard. And he called this script writing. And script writing is when you're speaking, John, I'm preparing my answer, writing my script. And this is exactly what these scientists found through multiple research programs. Stephen Covey said, people don't listen with the intent of understanding, they listen with the intent of replying. And to what you just pointed out, you know, how can we be giving a response to something in 0.2 seconds when our brain t- it takes 0.6 seconds? Well, that's because in a typical conversation, we have our answer ready and we're just waiting for the other person to come up for air so we can talk. The greatest gift we can give anyone is the gift of our attention. That's such a powerful thing, personally and professionally. And what I mean by that is sometimes even when I pull in the driveway on my way home from work, sometimes I can't go in yet. I have to sit in the garage for five, 10 minutes. I'm not ready to give that gift to to my family. I I don't want to go in and and not be ready. We're all preoccupied with what's going on in our world, genetically coded. It's my flight that was delayed. It's my business that's down in sales. It's my son that might have gotten in trouble at school, right? But we got to fight that urge. That if I meet you for coffee, an interview, or bump into you at a social gathering, and I talk to you for 15 to 45 minutes, 
Um, that doesn't mean we built a rapport. I could have been talking to you about myself for 45 minutes. So in order for you to build a, a relationship with anyone in a three minute to an hour conversation, you got to focus on their Ford, F-O-R-D. And that stands for family, occupation, recreation, and dreams. And if you focus on the other person's Ford, number one, it, it gets you to stay off yourself. They don't realize, but if you could find out two or more things as someone on board, you not only built a relationship, you own the relationship because to each and every one of us, our own Ford is our hot buttons. It's what gets us excited to talk about. Are you married? Do you have kids? How old are the kids? Occupation. What do you do? Um, what's your title? How long have you been doing it? What's the company's name? Recreation. That could be a lot of people's hottest buttons. What do you do with your free time? What do you do on the weekends? Are you an exerciser, jogger, you're training for your first marathon, you coach, you know, little league soccer, whatever that may be. You, you do hot yoga. And then the D for dream. What's uh, on your bucket list? What's your encore career that you're working towards? What's your dream vacation? And so all of our clients have worked forward into their CRM systems. And again, you don't have to be asking this. A lot of times clients overshare. My first business is a, a chain of uh, upscale salons and spas. So if you or your wife is calling in to reschedule an appointment, I don't want the person in the call center to ask you Ford questions, right? That'd be like a stalker <laughs> checklist. But a lot of times our clients tell us stuff without even us asking. So they might call in and say, I need to change my three o'clock on Wednesday because my daughter's soccer team made it to, you know, championship. Bam, we catch that. Instead of just saying, how about Friday at four? We catch it, we put it in the notes. And then when you come in on, on Friday, we can say, hey, how'd your daughter's soccer team do? And you're shocked. You don't remember mentioning that. It's just little things like that. And if you're a B2B company, typically you're never dealing with a client without having the database open and seeing what city, state, country they're from, who they work for, their last order, and any fort that you might have uh, inputted about their son, daughter, recent vacation, whatever that may look like. And you talk about tracking Ford. So you have that idea of the Ford and the CRM, but also I love the idea that, for example, I know that you love baseball. I have a Ford monthly allowance, so I could perhaps buy you a shirt or a baseball cap or even tickets. Exactly. There's a lot of great companies that have the, the Ford monthly allowance where it's almost a burden to their employees, a positive burden where you have to spend $25 a month. It might be for account executives, right? Lawyers, accountants, you know, a professional. And so if I'm talking to you today and you're my client, I'm listening, right? I'm listening. I'm hoping you give me something that your daughter just graduated from college or you're just celebrating your 15th wedding anniversary, something to give me so I can allocate it towards my $25. It might be five different Starbucks cards to different people for whatever reason, but you're really focused and it's getting you off the transactional thing. You might be calling in to ask me about something on your account or whatever. And the transaction part is I can give you the answer. Yes, no, you'll see it on your next invoice. And that's a transaction, but we want to make it an interaction. And none of this needs to take more time. Right. As I'm looking up your question about your account or credit or whatever that may be, there's downtime. So we could talk about, hey, do you have any exciting plans? How's the weather in Dublin this time of year? Is it as bad as it is in Cleveland, Ohio? And just those little innocuous conversations always lead to valuable Ford information. Is the what, John? Then you tell us the how with the five E's. So my biggest thing is your customer service, customer experience, hospitality, whatever you want to call it, training. 
needs to not be platitudes. If you tell 100 people, 100 employees to go above and beyond or exceed customers' expectations or deliver genuine hospitality, that will be processed and interpreted 100 different ways. So the best customer service companies remove the personal interpretation. For example, if you work for me, I have three companies, you have to deliver genuine hospitality face-to-face, on the phone, via email. All right. Now we define what genuine hospitality looks like. It's the five E's. And these five E's take less than five seconds to do. The first three take one second to do simultaneously. So it's enthusiastic greet, eye contact, and ear to ear smile. Right. That takes one second when you see someone that you work with. I don't care if it's the mailman or the UPS man or the FedEx man or a a client, right? Eye contact, enthusiastic greet, ear to ear smile. Engage them, which means it's about them, not you, what's going on in their world. And then educate them. Make sure every time someone communicates with you, they should always leave there saying, man, no one's smarter at their job than that person. The book constantly reminded me of a quote by American activist, actor, and author Maya Angelou, who said, I've learned that people will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And the reason I set that up is because we never gave a definition of what the relationship economy is. And it'd be great if you'd share your definition of what it is. That quote is so true. Listen, we're not loyal to an app. We're not loyal to technology. We're loyal to people. And we give people second chances unless we don't have that emotional connection. So the relationship economy is where the primary currency is the emotional connections made with customers, employees, and vendors that result in your organization becoming the brand customers cannot live without, which ultimately makes price irrelevant. And listen, you can make price irrelevant. Now, what making price irrelevant doesn't mean is that you can raise your prices 50% or 30% and not lose existing or potential customers. What making price irrelevant does mean is based on the experience your brand consistently delivers, your customers have no idea what your competition charges. So listen, everyone listening, me and you, we're all price sensitive, especially during these times. And But normal economic times, we're still price sensitive. And I've been the idiot that's driven three extra miles to save 50 cents on something. Every one of us and our clients and customers have a couple businesses, vendors, handyman, hairdresser, whoever it is to you, that you're so loyal to that mine is uh, Hooper. His name's Hooper. So if you lived in Cleveland, he's my handyman. I've used him for over 30 years and he doesn't work for me. But I've used him for everything. And his last name's Hooper. We call him Hoop. So if I heard you were thinking about, or you mentioned to me in a passing conversation and you were a neighbor or whatever and said, oh, I got to get my basement refinished or I got plumbing to get fixed or what, you know, whatever the, the, the project is, I'd say, you got to use Hoop. And your first response typically is, well, what's a Hoop? I'm like, oh my God, he's my handyman. He's the greatest guy in the world. I go on and on and on and tell you all about him and throw up on you. And then the question I always get, is, well, how much does Hoop charge an hour? Because my handyman charges 115 or 125. And that's where I'm embarrassed to say, I have no idea what Hoop charges. I could find out. I can call my assistant. She could pull up. But I don't care. He might be 100. He might be 175. And I don't care because he saves me money. 
He's peace of mind. He shows up when he says he does it right. And a lot of times he'll talk me out of things I think I need. He'll say, no, you don't need it. We could, we could accomplish this this way. And he saved me $5,000. So what side of the fence do we want to be on in our business? Do we want to be a line item that could be shopped to the lowest bidder, a line item from a P&L? Like, especially right now, we're all going to be doing that, right? We're all going to be saying, all right, we need to find cheaper elsewhere. Or are you the, that one or two things that the CEO is going to say, skip it. They're too valuable to us. Yeah. And as you say, discounting is the tax you pay for being average. But there's a stat you mentioned, John, and I know we're facing a recession. It's upon us already. And this speaks volumes that organizations spend $500 billion a year on advertising and marketing, yet they only spend $9 billion on customer service. So we're more obsessed with winning new customers than delighting the customers we have already won. That is a key metric to understand in today's relationship economy. To take it to a micro level, basically what it's saying is if you put your advertising, marketing, and customer service training budgets and you combine them, 98% is advertising and marketing and 2% is an investment in customer experience. And that's just, that's ridiculous, right? I mean, all we do, all you see is all these offers and incentives and first time and save and switch and all, but what are we doing for our existing clients? And the best world-class brands in the world advertise the least. They don't advertise like, like their, their competitors because they have a customer base that are evangelists. They're going out there and just coming back and convincing others to do the same versus the opposite is if you have shitty, crappy customer service and all you're doing is advertising more people to come in and experience the inconsistencies and the unempathetic experiences. Now you're creating brand terrorists doing brand assassination. And so, so, so consider flip-flopping those expenses and you'll see the return on investment is 10 times higher on the customer service training. And you'll actually save money because you won't have to advertise. So you can allocate that towards other things. One thing, again, related to this recession we're going to experience is there's a beautiful symbol in Chinese, which is the symbol for a crisis. And one brushstroke means crisis or disaster and the other one means opportunity so in other words there's always an opportunity in the crisis and one thing that dawned on me reading your book was how the role of cmo chief marketing officers will no longer be in charge of the brand and the new order of things it's going to be more and more the cxo and not to frighten cmos many who listen to the show this is the opportunity this moment to evolve their skills and become more experience-based chief marketing yeah, officer. And, 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 the, and the CMOs are the perfect ones to slide over and wear both hats. But marketing is reporting for the 10th straight year, a full decade, the chief marketing officer, at least in North America, the title is on the decline. 10 years in a row, corporate America is reducing the number of chief marketing officers. And the fastest growing C-suite position in corporate America is the chief experience officer. So your new marketing is your experience and it always has been. It's just taken a lot of people a little late to get to the party, but nothing speaks more like the experience I'm having. And the definition of your brand is 
what your customers perceive it as. You can say all day what your brand is, but that's not what your brand is. It's what the public sees it as, what they've experienced. And if that's a disconnect on what you think, well, they win because we are in the customer perception business. Oftentimes we may give out that somebody is not great at customer service within our team and point the finger. And we forget that when you point the finger, there's three pointing back at yourself. And you list many reasons why an employee may lack customer empathy. But one really stuck out for me, which is it is not the employee's responsibility to have a high service aptitude. It is the company's job to teach that to them. That is the foundation of everything we teach. And we detour 20 to 25% of people that call us up to work with us with this. Because when we start explaining this, it, it's a filter system and not everyone agrees or thinks, but it's a paradigm shift. How good any company is, any department, any team, any location is at customer service comes down to one thing and one thing only, their service aptitude, their average service aptitude, their medium service aptitude from the CEO to the guy working in the warehouse to the newest employee that's going to start next week and go through your orientation. And now that's not the paradigm shift. The paradigm shift is where service aptitude comes from. And most people think that it's innate, it's common sense, soft skills, and that's the farthest thing from the truth. The service aptitude comes from three primary places. The first one is previous life experiences. Most of us, most of our existing employees, and most of our future generation employees grew up not getting a Mercedes Benz when we turned 16, not you know, staying at uh, five-star resorts, not flying first class. Yet, the moment we get our first jobs and all jobs after that, we're expected to give that type of an experience to those types of clients, guests, patients, tenants, customers, whatever we may call them. It's not fair. My oldest son just graduated from college. If you hire him tomorrow and say, Johnny, I want you to treat our, 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 our customers the way you like to be treated, that'd be a huge mistake. You got to change and train what your standards, non-negotiable standards are. The second place service app to get shaped is previous work experience. I mean, unless you have a direct pipeline to former Walt Disney, Ritz Carlton employees, which none of us do, that means your employees and future generation employees have worked elsewhere that wasn't world-class. And what does that mean? That means that they were being trained by a typical boss to not trust customers. Hey, customers are out to take advantage of them. It's your job to enforce policy, 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 policy. And now we hire them and they start plat treating our platinum VIP client like they're trying to get away with something. Not their fault. So, so no one listening can control those first two things, previous life experiences and previous work experience. The only thing we can control is number three, what we do with them now right? The moment we hire them. And I love to ask this question to business leaders. If you hire my son tomorrow uh, to be in a customer facing position, how much training are you going to give him before he's allowed to start interacting with your customer? And some people say two days, some people say two weeks, some people say two months. That's actually not the answer I'm looking for, right? But the answer I'm looking for is based on your 40 hours of training, 400 hours, 2000, whatever it is, 
based on that, how much of those hours are technical, operational, you know, processes versus soft skill, building a rapport, showing compassion and empathy, your non-negotiable standards, and making a brilliant comeback when you drop the ball. And in typical businesses, it's 98% operational processes and less than 2%. Hey, Joe, again, back to we exceed clients' expectations. That's our motto. Go do that. And that's where it fails. So the, the, the best companies in, in, in customer service that dominate their industry and make price irrelevant are the ones that have an intense soft skill orientation and continued training like they do operational skills. And you were saying there about detouring businesses to see if they're serious about this. But one of the ways you find out where they are now to set a line in the sand of where their starting point is, is you ask them a simple question who is in charge of customer experience now? And oftentimes the answer is no one. Right. Who's losing sleep at night over it? I refer this to a personal life, right? Everyone can say what they want about what their their values and priorities are, right? We, we can all say, oh, well, my kids, my, my significant other. Great. Now show me your calendar. Let me look at your last 90 days and that will tell me what really is your values. But didn't you say your daughter plays in a soccer league this time? Yeah. Well, I'm looking at your calendar. Hasn't she had any games? I've just been busy. I've been trying. Okay. Okay. Right. Didn't you say that spending quality time with your significant other? Well, I don't see any date nights. I don't see uh, any workouts. So again, your calendar tells me what your priorities really are, not what you say they are. And in the same thing, a CEO could say, oh, customer service is a priority. Prove it to me. Who's losing sleep at night? And it can't be the CEO. The CEO is losing sleep at night over everything. And if you're losing sleep at night over everything, you're not losing sleep at night. Nothing's a priority. But we have to have people. You have a CFO who's driving you nuts about expenses and all that and fat and all that, which is great. And you have a chief operations officer who's worried about productivity and efficiency. Who is losing sleep at night over the customer experience and the training and the execution and the net promoter score and the retention rates and all the resign rates? And the thing is, you can't just give that to a CMO on top of everything else they do. Time needs to be carved out in order to do this right. And again, this is why companies hire you. But I wanted to come back to something else, but you mentioned your son there just finishing college. And a thing dawned on me, which is this COVID-19 pandemic and this kind of forced recession. On top of that, and I, I, I want to declare here, I'm not being a naysayer or, or negative in this. A gainsayer is calling out these things for the right reasons. And one of the reasons I call this out is the importance of these relationship skills the importance of human skills as the world becomes more and more digital, we need to become more and more human. And there's a tech tsunami not coming. It's already upon us and it's destroying jobs. And we don't see it because it changes at an exponential rate, which is slow at the start and then quicker and quicker. And if you add in automation, AI, robotics, they're all replacing jobs at the rate of knots. And this highlights more than ever the value of human relationships. And I'd love if you emphasize this from your perspective, from what you've seen, 
both the destruction but also the creation from the destruction? A crisis is a horrible thing to waste. And there is a reason for this. And it's to make a correction in the world we're living in today. And I think this is a great opportunity for us to get back to the, what's most important in our world. And, and, and technology is not the enemy, but using it to eliminate the human interactions is. And we've done that personally and we've done that professionally. And I just think it's fate forcing us to go back to the basics, look people eye to eye, and where we are today, what we've accumulated is a direct reflection of the relationships we've built over our lifetime. And, and that's the single biggest you know, factor contributing to where we are today. And that will be true in 10 years and that will be true on our deathbed. And so I, 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 I love, I, I might be the only person to say this, I don't like anyone in, in financial despair, but, but, that, but I do. I've always enjoyed a recession. I think there's a lot of benefits to a recession. A, a recession is like a business enema. It cleans out the crappy businesses that shouldn't have been. Even a turkey can fly in a tornado. Well, there's been a lot of turkeys flying <laughs> in, in, in the tornado. Once that tornado stops, there's a lot of turkeys that are dropping out of the sky. And the companies that are positioned the best, Loyalty will never become more obvious right now from a customer and an employee standpoint. People get really choosy. And how you show what you're made of during this time is so critically important to your customers. I can't believe the knee-jerk reaction people are having with penalizing people for trying to postpone or cancel their events, their conferences, their contracts, and enforcing all this stuff. Are you kidding me? And getting into a pissing match if it's a force majeure, act of God, state of emergency. I mean, it's going to come back and we don't know how long, but when it does, people are going to remember how you treated them when they were in trouble. And if you want to pull out the contract and say, no, you owe us this or, or whatever, I mean, that's just ridiculous. Same thing with employees. Now, we all have to do what we have to do to make sure that this company remains in business um, in the next you know, 90 days. But how you're communicating and caring and showing empathy and concern for your employees is critical. And one of my most popular videos I've sent out in a long time, it's how to make coronavirus crisis your bitch. And the incredible opportunities there are in our personal life. And people love this video because I'm talking about, all right, we're stuck at home. In the States, we're stuck at home. We're all under house arrest. But man, I'm stuck at home with my kids. And we're playing the DeJulius uh, Family Olympics. And we're looking at old pictures and I'm showing them videos of what it was like when I grew up and black and white videos. And they're like saying, well, dad, you said you walked up a mountain both ways to school, uh, home and back barefoot in the snow. Where's that? But it's just funny. And, and we're playing, we're making a trivia, family trivia game and storytelling and just stuff that we needed to get back to the base. And there's opportunities in business. Like I'm really excited. Like we just had a, a call with the DeJulius group team. And at first I thought we were going to have to cut hours and we absolutely may, but what got me more energized was the fact that now with everything basically on hold, we all have this free time and there has been things that I'm mad and embarrassed about that we haven't gotten to for two, three years that's been on our to-do list that our brand needs to evolve, 
new revenue streams, better education, product, all these things that now we have time to. And I actually got so excited that we can actually all commit to knocking this stuff out that we never have time to. And I am 100% confident that what we're going to about to embark on and, and the innovations and stuff that we know we've needed to will make us a better company coming out. And actually 2021, we will have a better year financially, revenue, top line, bottom line, than had we not been interrupted by this, this crisis. I love what you said there, man, about the business enema, because it's the same thing. I, I always look to nature because nature has the answer for so many things. And there's this, this one beautiful metaphor I love, which is the, the idea of the butterfly. And the butterfly starts off with a caterpillar and the caterpillar eats up what it used to be. So when it goes into that cocoon state, it uses its former self as nutrition to feed the new version, which is the butterfly. And I believe this moment is exactly like going into a cocoon. And it's a unique moment. We're never going to have this chance again in our lifetimes. And like you said, the opportunity to connect, the opportunity to build those relationships with our family that we shamefully don't have time for, that we need to make time for. I think it's a reset moment, a huge opportunity in life. But coming back to something you said there, man, and you mentioned your video that you sent out, which I checked out and I loved. Business leaders in this moment need to step up. And you mentioned storytelling in the book, John, and you said companies need to create outlets where employees can hear about the great customer success stories, especially when the company is a large one. So the bigger it is, the more they have to share these stories, but not just the positive stories, the negative stories, the hardships, etc. And also leaders need to show vulnerability. Absolutely. I mean, the backstory is so key. And there's a great, great article that was in the Harvard Business Review called The Soul of a Startup. And it just talks about it's inevitable. We're all, as we grow and we all want to grow, we're going to lose that soul that when when me and you, you know, started the company and, and maybe you were my first employer, the first five, and we we used to work till 2 a.m. trying to figure this out because we had no idea what we were doing and we we're in over our head and we we're eating pizza, cold pizza on the floor as we were trying to figure out. I mean, that's that that's the magic. Well, now you fast forward 10, 15, 30 years later, and you have maybe hundreds and hundreds of employees who don't get access to you or me. And they just think, man, this company, he, he probably was born with a silver spoon and, and everything came easy to him. And they don't hear, and they're not in the trenches with me eating pizza until 2 a.m. So they don't have that emotional connection. They're not ready to walk through a fire. So it's important that that gets handed down. You were telling me before we started that your first few podcasts or radio interviews was literally in a closet. Hey like, man, stop like, telling them, man, stop showing my credibility, <laughs> goddammit. <laughs> right. I mean, but that's the best because they look at you now and they think, oh man, he's a rock star and he never struggled. No, I let mean, me tell you what it was like, right? The, the hangers kept on falling on my head and I had to figure out how to play that into, that was like uh, music in the background, whatever. And, and every generation of a new employee's orientation needs to hear those stories. So you can try to preserve the soul of the startup, where you came from, what it took to get here and where you're going. Those are such key things. There's so much gold in the book, and I was telling you, you can tell how well-read you are and the relationships you have and the stories you tell. 
But there's a lovely quote I'd love to finish on and set you up maybe for your final message to our listeners, which is, we have to give a sense of urgency to what we were born to do, to make an impact and to leave a legacy. Our time is very short, shorter than any of us realize. And the reason I picked that out is in this momentary crisis, because there will be more, everything tends towards chaos from order. So it's just a cycle that we go through. There will be more coming down the line. But during this period of lockdown, we have, like you said, we have this immense opportunity to look after those things that we have not had the time to do and just put them to bed and be happy about them that we've done them and not be on our deathbed going, if only I did that. This is the moment for that. And I'd love to set you up for your message to our audience. To your point, we're just tourists, right, on earth. And we don't know when our passport's going to be pulled. And yeah, listen, I, I'll be honest. Yeah, I found out the hard way. I lost my wife about 10 years ago and that sucks, uh, right? It absolutely sucks. But on the flip side, I had less regret because the way we lived our life, we, we didn't take life as for granted as we could have. And we, we, we always try to live by that. I mean, something that pops up on my phone every morning at 6 a.m. Uh, intentionally is this quote, because it's the first thing I want to come to my mind, because it's really important. What's the first thing you think of when you get out of bed? Are you thinking about snooze? Are you thinking about, oh, I don't want to go to work today? I think that that, that being intentional about what you, you your first thought of the day. So every morning at 6 a.m., I got this quote that pops up that says, act as if today's the day you'll be remembered for how you treat others. And that's important to me, because I don't know when that last day will be. And I don't, and you might say, hey, John, we have a surprise for you. I love doing this with people. Hey, we have a surprise for you. You didn't know this, but the last normal business day you had where you woke up and got your kids ready and went to work and came in contact and drove to work and all the ran to the, the grocery store or the drugstore and errands, we videotaped it. And we want to show it to everyone right now to show what type of you know person you are when you and all of a sudden people panic like if it was true like oh no, no, no. let me see it first Friday wasn't a good day for me uh, let's not show that can can you give me a little advance warning can it be this Friday well we don't get advance warning like today might be the day so let's act as if today is the day we will be remembered for how we treat others and let's do that intentionally and and, and the more often we do that the less regret I think we'll have professionally and personal. Beautiful, John. And where can people find out more about you, your book, your work, etc.? Um, at thedjuliusgroup.com, thedjuliusgroup.com, or they can email me at john at thedjuliusgroup.com. Author of The Relationship Economy, Building Stronger Customer Connections in the Digital Age, John D. Julius, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a real honor.